Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and it's my privilege to welcome back to the show A.J. Sherrill. A.J.'s a pastor of over 20 years who has had experience serving everywhere from the beaches of Southern California to the streets of New York City. He's presently the lead pastor of St. Peter's Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he has a new book coming out in the fall of 2021 called Being with God, The Absurdity, Necessity, and Neurology of Contemplative Prayer. Now, as listeners know, I'm a practitioner of Centering Prayer myself, and I have a book coming out in the fall also, and I loved hearing AJ's insights on on contemplative prayer, and he's going to bring some really helpful angles in on the actual neurology and the science behind it, along with some really telling commentary on our contemporary world and some helpful tactics that you can use today to deepen your spirituality. hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Welcome back to the podcast, AJ. It's so great to see you again. Yeah, you too, Brian. How's it going? It's going great. And uh, again, super grateful for your time. So just uh, jump right into the first question. You know, you, you have a new book coming out, uh, Being with God, The Absurdity, Necessity, and Neurology of Contemplative Prayer. So what's the backstory on it, on writing a book like that? And how does it relate to your other books that you've, uh, you've written? Like you just said, you had your Enneagram book that we talked about the last time you were on. So what's, what's the story on this new book and how does it relate to your previous writing? Yeah, thanks. Great, great question. Um, before I jump in, apologize, apologies to your listeners. I have like a killer cold, so you can hear it in my nose. Probably it's not great. Nevertheless, let's prevail. Um, yeah, I, years ago when I lived in New York City, I pastored in a neighborhood called Chelsea, which is just on the, the west side of Manhattan. And um, I really felt a need for like contemplative rhythms in my life and started, you know, I'd been practicing for a while and learning a ton and wrote a book up there called Quiet. Not the New York Times bestseller on introverts, but a little thin book called Quiet, Hearing God Amidst the Noise. And um, my publisher, Baker, uh, bought the rights to that a couple of years ago and wanted me to expand on it. So um, if any of your listeners have read Quiet, it's this thin little how-to book on contemplative prayer. Because mm -hmm. as many of you know, like getting into this stream is the hardest part. Often that first step is the hardest one because it's like, how do you do this? What does it mean? Is it working? Like all those questions come up for people. So um, this sort of expands on both sides of quiet. On the front side, I do a lot of work on this cultural moment. So mm -hmm. John Mark Homer has been a long-term friend of mine and we talk a lot about culture and I've just been doing a lot of work um, with colleagues of mine around like what kind of cultural moment are we inhabiting that makes this kind of prayer life absurd? And then on the backside, I have been mentored by a neuropsychologist who works with a lot of professional athletes and C-suite executives on optimizing brain health. And he was a part of my church in Mars Hill uh, when I was in Grand Rapids. Um, that's not the Seattle one. That's the Grand Rapids one. Um, and uh, very different churches, by the way. And <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, we became really fast friends. And he started teaching me all this stuff on brain science probably five to seven years ago. And we would do these workshops together on, uh, we would hook people's brains up to an EEG and watch what happens when you pray in a contemplative frame. 
And we were noticing areas of the brain that light up that don't wow. typically light up when you're living in your frontal lobe. So that is massive in terms of empathy, sympathy, self-awareness, all that sort of stuff comes into the fray. And we don't live a lot of our lives in that framework. We live a lot from the frontal lobe, a mm -hmm. lot from the amygdala, and we can talk more about that. But all that to say, like, I'm fascinated about not just the practice of contemplation, but the cultural moment that we're living in that makes it even more difficult to pursue this. And also, if we do try this on, what kind of brain health can we expect or should we be longing for that we've been missing in our lives? No, that's really good. And I'm, I'm going to uh, almost immediately follow up on what you just said, but we probably ought to first say something about um, what is your understanding of contemplative prayer and, and how do you just, how do you uh, distinguish it from other types of prayer for, for folks that maybe not fam be familiar with it? Yeah, I think one of the best voices on that has been um, like Robert Mulholland Jr. and his work. I love his definition on, um, on centering prayer. I think it's one I've always gone back to time and again, where he says contemplation is simply the practice of stilling ourselves before God, moving ever deeper into the core of our being and simply offering ourselves to God in totally vulnerable love. And I like that because I think contemplative prayer is like that onion that you're just giving yourself time. We live so much on the outer layers of our life. We basically are like these rocks skimming the surface and we never actually get to the deep interiority about who we are, our belovedness. And so it makes sense that we don't live from that place. Yeah. We live from a place of meritocracy. We live from a place of performance and achievement, even as it relates to God. Our, our, our life with God is more about um, being at God or getting stuff from God rather than being with God. Mm -hmm. So that's why I titled this new book, Being With God. Yeah. Um, there's a withness that we are invited to that we rarely get to because of the ways that the cultural scripts are often coming at us, telling us that we are inadequate, we're insufficient, we need to earn our place in life. And that is so antithetical to the gospel. Oh, that's so good. You know, just, it's just funny. I and mean, I'm feeling like um, I got ripped off here because, you know, I used Mulholland was, was one of the Asbury professors. And so I'm thinking, I never knew he wrote anything about centering prayer. So do you, do you, off the top of your head, I put you on the spot. Do you remember what book that was? It's, it wasn't a shape by the word. It must be the invitation to a journey or something. Maybe? Yeah. I think it's, he did a revision of that called the deeper journey. Oh, okay, and so okay. he's got this, like a few throwaway lines. Right, the beginning of that book that I just snatched up for my own purposes because I'm like that, that is it. Thank that's you, awesome. Holland. I yeah. appreciate that. That's good. That's good. So, what about our world today? You talked about the culture. Um, uh, what 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 about our world makes silence and solitude practices like contemplative prayer both? I mean, I love the two words you put in the title: um, absurd and necessary. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, I, I think let's go back to like pre-COVID, which I, I think kind of like the roaring 20s with the, the Spanish flu that happened after that, they'll continue to be, I think, a resurgence of just like trying to pick up where we left off, but feeling suppressed. So we'll go even further than that to just get back to busyness. That's not going to change anytime soon, in my opinion. So what happens, I'll take you back to a moment that happened pre-COVID. I think it was July 9th or something like that, 2019. And Times Square, JLo was performing at Madison Square Garden the lights all of a sudden, like around midnight, went out. And 70,000 people in Times Square came stumbling out into the streets 
and Jayla was not happy about her concert being shut down by the lack of electricity, power outage, and everyone has their phones and they are trying to light up Times Square because it's just dark. I mean, when you see pictures of that power outage, it's almost apocalyptic. And, um, you know, the news headlines were like, can you believe it? The lights went out. The lights went out in Times Square. It was crazy. And as I evaluated that moment, I thought, okay, what do we expect at 4 p.m. in Times Square? Lights. What do you expect at 4 a.m. in Times Square? Lights. What do you expect at midnight, at 12 in the afternoon? At whatever time you ask, you can expect lights, 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 lights. And so the conversation for me about culture is that Times Square is a metaphor. We are living in such a world where the lights are always meant to be on. But what's weirder? Is it weirder that the lights went out in Times Square? Or is it weirder that we've lived in a kind of cultural conditioning where we expect the lights in our life to always be on, where we always have to stay busy? We always have to keep running. We always are running after the next thing in performance. And I think that's the cultural absurdity that we find ourselves in, that it is just crazy, the pace. It is yeah. crazy. I mean, I even think of the real estate market right now, the cost of living. It is just insane. And it feels like it is on a one-way road to absurdity. And in that sort of moment, it makes this type of prayer even more preposterous. That You're telling me in a meritocratic worldview, you're calling me to, to, to pull back and to be silent and still in a society where time is money and opportunity cost and ROI is the way of life. That's a really hard thing to do. That's really, it's really good. So if a person starts committing to a, a to silent prayer, essentially, and, and by that, I mean, we mean silent meditative prayer, contemplative prayer, uh, prayer without words. Uh, what, what are the hindrances to a person getting started? And, and how do you help people overcome the initial, what do you have to call it, the decompression to be able to actually start doing it and be able to have a practice? Yeah, well, I think you, first of all, have to have a kind of um, spirituality that chooses to believe that God is at work in you already. Yeah, that's good. And, and so what if prayer isn't starting a conversation with God? What if prayer is joining a conversation that the triune God is already having within you? I'll, I'll give an example. Like Paul talks about how the spirit groans in us, right? So the Holy Spirit lives in the core of our being groaning. And it says that the spirit is making intercessions for us to the father. And so, okay, that's weird. So there is a dialogue between the father and the spirit, the father being transcendent, having a conversation with the spirit who is imminent within us. What if prayer is really about attending to the conversation that's already happening, mm -hmm. which I think happens when we get away from our own scripts and our own chatter. And we begin to say, do I even know what the voice of the spirit groaning within me sounds like? So I think you have to trust that that's happening. And that's hard to do, especially in sort of a Protestant church culture where we are told that like what matters most is what we're saying to God. Um, we go in church and it's loud. All we get is like um, information at us in every direction. And I don't think any of that's wrong. I like what's called cataphatic spirituality. It's just that we never give credence to apathetic spirituality, which is getting away from sensory experience and recognizing that God is deeper than our words. God is more than our songs. God is bigger than the things that we can apprehend in our heads, that God is 
the force of meaning at work in all of the universe and living in the core of our being. So I think that's one of the big theological things that Christians need to come to terms with is trusting that the presence of God is within you and wants to meet you in that quiet place. Just like Jesus said, to go into your inner room, right? That, that center of the pantry closet in your life where you can be with God in stillness and silence and solitude. So that's number one. Um, and I think number two, it, it's hard to quiet the noise in our lives. We all feel so inadequate. We feel so behind. We feel um, so insecure that we have these constant scripts going in our frontal lobe. And it's hard to push beyond those. It's hard to know what to do with those, to silence all that inner critic and all that inner noise in order to be in the stillness of, uh, of, of our prayer life with God. Well, that, that was really powerful. And, and uh, I recognize this is a difficult question to answer because I'm not actually 100% sure how to answer it myself. But I always like to ask folks that have been doing um, like a centering prayer, contemplative prayer practice for a while, what does it feel like when you get those moments? And I, you know, again, I don't know how you talk about it, but I usually just talk, it's usually just like little split moments where you feel like you're really in God's presence. And, you know, like I would always just say, I just feel fully loved. I mean, is that how you talk about it? Is there different language? Um, what, what, what could you share a little bit about uh, like maybe one of the most powerful experiences without promising folks that this happens every single time you do it? Cause it probably yeah. doesn't. Yeah. So let's say we do a 20 minute prayer sit. Right? Yeah, you're yeah. Just, we were saying you're, you're doing your breath prayer or your Jesus prayer or whatever it is that you do to give your frontal lobe something to do in order to create space where you can just be with God. I would say the first 19 minutes, I hate it. I hate it. It's like pulling weeds for 19 minutes of just like unforgiveness that's in my heart, mm -hmm. um, emails I need to check, um, things I need to do, conversations that are unfinished. Um, and I'll tell you, like, I hate contemplative prayer for like the first 19 minutes, but you're right. It's like all of a sudden you'll get this like sheer experience of just being like feeling connected, feeling like, what if, what if God really is at the core of all things? And it's, it's, it's hard to describe. It's beyond words where yeah. you just sense like a warmth. And in, uh, uh, like not energy in like a new agey way, like some sort of abstractness. You're right, like like a kind of love that is um, that is beyond what you could apprehend. And then all of a sudden, my alarm will go off, and I'll be done, and have to go in, you know, to the rest of my day. And I'll just be like, oh, that was so great. <laughs> but then to do it again takes another 19 minutes. You know what I mean? So, and I'm not suggesting like it takes 19 minutes, and then you'll have a breakthrough. But that's often how my times with God works. It's like, it's work and it's hard, but those little sheer shards of being, um, they're, they're hard to describe. And what's your take? I mean, because I loved how you just described that, because that is, I mean, I think that's pretty, pretty common. You'll go through a long period and, you know, I don't even say it's like, I don't always even have that great last minute. Sometimes my alarm just goes off and I've been in this kind of, um, you know, hamster wheel thing the whole time. But um, that isn't wasted time, though, right? Because like you said, you, you, you see stuff, you, you get confronted with um you know, sometimes it's just meaningless things like, did I check an email or, or did I change, check my alarm or set my alarm? So this is going to end at some point. Right. Um, but then you do get those like lack of forgiveness or um, like I, you know, like in my own thinking, 
all the stuff that goes into, say, the seven deadly sins, any one of those things, you can be confronted with that, your pride, um, um, gluttony, um, all the uh, uh, lost, all those things sometimes can confront you in moments. And to me, um, that seems like that's healing is so would you what do you, you know, the 19 minutes, it's hard, but that's that's part of the beauty of the whole thing, too, in its own way, right? Oh, I agree. And it's so instructive, like God doesn't waste anything all that stuff. I mean, and sometimes it doesn't even take that long. I think what it tells me is that, um, that, that life like has to, it's like a garden, it's a garden and it has to be tended. Yeah, it's good. And very quickly weeds come up that get in the way of being with God. And, and the more weeds that you allow in your life, the, the more you have to pull in order to get to that spacious place that the Psalms talk about. Yeah, that's um, good. So I, I just think all of that is instructive and it, it all is helpful on the journey. Yeah, I love that metaphor of just thinking of a garden. I was even just thinking about like a meal. It's like sometimes it, you know, it takes so long to prepare a meal and then you eat it really fast. You're like, well, geez, I just cooked for four hours to have that five minutes of uh, eating that piece of cake or whatever I'm doing. So I, I actually, that's a really great metaphor that you just used. So uh, so thank you. Let's um, let's switch a little bit back to neurology. Again, I'm going to be mindful of our, of our time and your your generosity. You know, the fact you're not feeling all that, all that great today, but you talked about... Um, a little bit of the neurology, um, and you talked about being hooked up and seeing the brain waves and everything. But how, what else did you learn that might that maybe surprised you? Um, that might be interesting as kind of a teaser to get people to take a, a deeper look into your book. But I mean, what's a couple takeaways that you got from neurology that really helped you as you wrote this? So much. So there's three sections on the neurology section. One is on breath. Mm. So what's happening in our breathing, and how do we see that already in the biblical text that we've missed? Yeah. Um, what's happening in our sleep? And also mm. what's happening in our stress. So, um, That's good. I mean, so if we talk about breath, you know, if I were to ask you, hey, listen, what percentage of your brain energy, um, if you had a breakdown, you have 100% to give out between food, water, sleep, oxygen, how would you allocate toward 100% of like brain optimization? What people don't realize is that 90% of our brain health comes from O2. Wow. And what's crazy about that, and so you think about breath prayer mm -hmm. and how integrating your breath is actually part of restoring um, the, um, the restoring uh, your mind, you know, as Romans, I think it was uh, chapter 12 or eight talks about, like when you think about the fact that we live lives hunched over, typically at desks, mm -hmm. writing on, you know, pads going into a screen um, or something like that, most of our lives are spent with about, 30 to 40% of yesterday's carbon dioxide still sitting in our lungs. And we never actually fully breathe properly to receive, like the way you have about 600 million alveoli, which are the receptors in, on your lungs, by the way. And tell me when I nerd out too much and I'll stop and go a different direction. I love it. <laughs> you have these little receptors on your lungs that, by the way, if you were to stretch them out, would cover a tennis court. It's insane yeah. the way God made your, your lungs. Um, wow which COVID even exemplifies even more what's happening on our lungs and scar tissue and all that stuff. So mm. these little alveoli receptors, um, what happens in them is they kind of like, they kind of like perk up when the oxygen comes in. And the fact that most of those are drowning in CO2 and don't have access to receiving the kind of oxygen that we need in order for that to create clean electrical current in our brains in order to think properly about life is really, I think, instructive. So like, what does it mean to breathe deeply, to breathe well, to stop throughout our day, to have breathing exercises of reconnecting with God, 
who breathed life into Adam, into the dust to create us, that kind of breath, that ruach, right? That, that is woven all the way throughout the scriptures. And so um, we are called to breathe properly the breath that God has given us in order to fully optimize life with God and life with one another. Um, I find sleep really important. I think sleep is, is getting a lot of credi credibility and a lot of trend right now and a lot of articles and things that we're seeing even in the mainstream news. Um, and I, 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 I want to suggest that sleep is more spiritual than we think. Mm -hmm. You know, we live in a world where we kind of despise sleep. Oh, press on, you know, that's a waste of time. You can sleep when you die. Um, there's actually a spirituality of sleep. And in this book, I actually show how rest and sleep, which is a part of the contemplative life, um, you know, it, um, it, sleep, um, is, sorry, I'm sort of getting brain fog since I have a cold right now. Um, sleep is such an integral part to the biblical text. Yeah. The amount of things that God does, if you even look at the infancy narrative or the advent narrative, even before Christ is born, the amount of communication that God is doing in people's sleep is incredible. Yeah, it's true. It's good. That sleep might be one of the most restorative, connective ways in which God speaks to us. I know I solve problems in my sleep. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, for the first four hours of your sleep cycle, your brain goes to work on your body and repairs your organs. For the second four hours, your brain goes to work on itself. It squeezes itself and squeezes the toxins out of your body so that it can rejuvenate, rejuvenate itself. So I'll hear people say to me all the time, like, oh, I only need four to five hours of sleep. You're right. Your body does, but your brain is totally missing out on being fully optimized for a long-term investment. So like, if you want to invest in your life, four hours of sleep gives you a short-term investment for tomorrow where your body can function. But eight hours of sleep gives you a long-term investment so that your minds can fully recover to offset dementia Alzheimer's and a lot of these things that we're seeing today, I think increasingly so because people aren't sleeping in good patterns anymore. So I think the contemplative life has a lot to do with that. No, that's really good. And again, I want to talk about rule of life for a minute, but it's, uh, I just love what you just said, because I know one of the things that I do when I, I teach uh, uh, the folks I coach and even the students when I do devotions is I actually do a devotion on sleep and say, before we talk about anything else, you know, if you want to, you know, you want to grow in grace and if you want to really deepen your spiritual formation, uh, let's start by committing to trying to sleep about, you know, seven to eight hours every night. And people are always like, what are you talking about? And it's like, I just love the way you just said that. Cause I didn't even know some of the stuff you just said. It was just been my gut that, you know, we need to sleep basically because that's a way to me, it's always sleep. I sleep because that's, that's a way of me saying I'm not God and God doesn't sleep. Yes. So I can just yes. chill out. And uh... yes. it is, it is the, it is the, the daily reminder that we get to surrender and how vulnerable yeah. are you in your sleep? Completely We're right. Totally vulnerable. <laughs> and isn't that what Mulholland said about contemplative spirituality? It's surrendering to God in totally vulnerable love. And so the last thing, as Bonhoeffer would say, that God deserves the first word and the last word of our day, like the last word to God at night is I totally trust you That's as good. I sleep. I trust that you will heal me as I sleep. That is so great. That's, that's good. And the Psalms say a lot about that too. So we could, we could do a whole podcast on sleep. It sounds like, but I just love what you said that. So, uh, so when you, if you think about rule of life then, and again, I loved your Enneagram book and we, you know, we folks can go back and listen to that interview I did with you. Cause it was so, the book so helpful. Um, how, where does contemplative 
prayer fit into, say, a, a, a Christian's rule of life? And to connect it to Enneagram for a second, if you can even connect it, do you find that certain Enneagram types gravitate more to say a contemplative prayer than others? Is, do you have any thoughts about um, either of those two questions? Well, I, I do in my, my book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation, what's called upstream and downstream. Practices. Yeah, yeah. So upstream are ones that are really hard for us. Nevertheless, we should persist in them, but they're going to like, imagine being in a lazy river. You got to fight upstream. It requires effort. Downstream are the ones that you just love that you just lay in the raft and it takes you downstream and it's awesome, right? So some people love Bible reading, others, you know, um, service projects, others love contemplative practice. So it just depends on your personality for that. I would suggest that every type because of our cultural moment needs them. Mm -hmm. um, some sort of solitude, silence, and stillness um, integrated, at least in their week, if not in their day. Um, but I know nines often say that there's a lot of like, um, self-accusation ones, especially, you know, and so they have to be very careful on like what silence, what kind of scripts are coming up and how to actually like counter that with the word of God so that they're not sort of, um, taken down by the negative scripts in their life and contemplative spirituality. Cause when you silence yourself, inevitably all those things come up for you. Um, so there's like, I wouldn't be prescriptive about it, mm -hmm. but I would say that, um, like, I like Henri Nouwen's categories the best. So mm -hmm. he wrote a, he wrote an article for leadership journal years ago that I use for all of my retreats. Um, and it's called from solitude to community to ministry. And it's free, um, online. If you look up the PDF and he likes to organize his rule of life in three directions, solitude, community, and ministry and ministry, we might say mission or whatever. Mm -hmm. So like what I like to do when I look at a rule of life for someone is I like to, for them to write out what it is they're committed to. And then what I like them to do through those practices is to say, okay, label each practice, solitude, community, or ministry, solitude, community, or ministry, solitude, community, or ministry. Yeah, it's good. And I want you to notice if your spiritual habits are balanced is all of your spiritual formation ministry is all of it community, is all of it solitude, because we need them all, right? They all work together. Um, as Bonhoeffer would say, there's no such thing without, there's no such thing as true community if you're not alone. And you can't truly be alone with God unless you're also somewhere in community. Those things work together. Um, so I like to just um, give a healthy diet for Christians to say like, hey, see if you're integrated or see if you're sort of, um, you know, bloated in certain areas of your formation and really malnourished in others with those three categories of solitude, community, and ministry. No, that's super helpful. And I'll try to make sure I put, well, I'm going to put the, I'll put a link to that article um, in the, in the notes. I think it's, that's, that's really helpful, AJ. And that's, that's what I really appreciate about um, looking forward to reading your new book. I haven't been able to, uh, to, to see it yet, but I love the Enneagram book so much because it was so practical, um, every basically every word was worth reading which that's not true of most books that you read and i just love the clarity that uh you just brought right there that was um i mean that's going to change the way i actually help people with their rule of life so just appreciate that it was really good um can you and can you talk and this is totally uh, this is kind of off topic in a way but I, what one of the things i'm just um uh, I've been blown away just, you know, just since I've got to know you over the last years. I mean, how many books you've been able to produce while you've been a pastor? I mean, you were a pastor, you know, I don't know how big your context is in South Carolina, but you were up at Mars Hills. That's a pretty good sized church there. And so, but you were producing books. So how does writing work for you as part of your life as a, a pastor of, you know, significantly sized churches? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so, I mean, obviously when you're, when you pastor bigger churches, you have a greater staff that you can sort of specialize in some okay. ways. Okay. So that's helpful. Um, and I will say um, a, a few years ago, um, I was having breakfast with Bill Hybels um, and uh, I know there's a ton of opinions that, so lay those down, whatever those are right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's actually quite good at leadership as it yeah. turns out. Um, now, whether you agree with all of his actions or not is entirely debatable and, and rightfully so. Um, but we were having a conversation about leadership and um, he was telling me over, it was just the two of us. And, and, and I said, how do you, how have you written so many books? And he said, I do it. He said, I, I get two days off. One is a full Sabbath and one I use for writing. And he said that in his early days of Willow, there were all of these, he, at one point he had like six people on staff that were all writing books. You know, there was so much influence in that church mm -hmm. coming through their staff. And he would come by like on a Wednesday, Wednesday early afternoon or a Tuesday morning and knock on the door and, hey, what you working on? And, oh, I'm working on my book for this thing. And he said, I'll never forget it. He said, I had to have really honest conversations that when we are here in work hours, we're working for Willow Creek. Like we're here to, to bless our tithe givers. And that does not include your book deal. Uh, you know, somewhere else, some publisher out in Grand Rapids or Colorado Springs, you know, now indirectly, it probably blessed them, right? But he was just really adamant that we need to be disciplined and that if you have two full days off, you should take a day and you can do a lot over the course of a year if you're disciplined one day a week to write. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're reading every day, right? It's part of our mornings or whatever your rhythm is. And I really like that. It is not for the pastor, even of a small church. I would encourage you, honestly, we do what we want in life, yes. period. We do. Now, that doesn't mean there's not seasons where there's strain on us and demands that we don't. But most of life, as Americans, we do what we want. And if you want to write a book, then you'll write a book. If really you don't want to write a book, then you won't. And so if you want to write it, find that time, create that sacred space. And I know this. I have about three hours if not an hour and a half to three hours of creative space. Meaning not, not, like I could create the whole day for writing. Right, I'm not right. going to be very good at it. No, I no. got about an hour and a half to three hour window every day where I'm actually creative. So on Fridays between nine and noon, it's one of my days off. I just write. Yeah. And I have found that over the course of a year, you can easily turn out a two to 300 page book. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So I would just encourage pastors that feel like that's another life and another time. Um, maybe not. Maybe it's maybe it could be more accessible than you think with just small chunks. Um, recently, I got to have lunch with um, a hero of mine named Stephen Pressfield. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, he had lunch on my porch here the other day. Oh, and nice. <laughs> uh, he wrote a book called Do the Work. He also wrote a book called Going Pro or turning pro. Yeah. And those were the two books that helped me turn the corner to write my first book, which was quiet. And, and by the way, you can self-publish and your books don't need to be long. In fact, I think the future of books are shorter. People's attention spans are shrinking and they're turning more to podcast and visual orientation. So our books need to be smaller. We need to get rid of fluff and we just need to write what it is, the marrow of what we're trying to talk about. And so I think it's very accessible. I'm very hopeful about book writing for people all across the spectrum.
No, that's so good. And just a great reminder too. I love how you said you, you, you recognize your limitations, you know, you got this sweet spot of um, that you can write in and then you schedule it, right? That's the key thing. It's like, everybody's got the same 24 hours. We all know when our best time is. And so if you want to write a book, you take your best time. You don't wait till you're tired. You do your best time and you do it. So that just thanks for that reminder. That was so good. And uh, no, I guess yeah, I would, so yeah, I'm going to do an interview with Steven um, oh, yeah. in a few weeks. So I'll awesome. let you know when that's posted, but um, I'm going to ask him all sorts of those questions of, of like, Steven, you are a pro writing. What advice would you give us who are just trying to make ends meet every day to actually churn out books that matter for the world? So I'll be wow. excited to hear what he says to that. And um, just, I, I think there's so many people that are in our boat, Brian, that are like, we want to write, we love writing, but it's hard and who cares, all that stuff. So that's good. Well, thank you. Yeah, that'll be, I'll definitely want to listen to that. So let that definitely let me know. Well, let me just ask you a couple of quick questions and we'll just wrap this up. And again, thanks for being a trooper today and uh, getting through your cold here. Cause I, we haven't even been able, I, I don't think anybody would have known if you wouldn't have said honestly, but, but I know I will uh, get this wound down. What any surprising lessons for you during the pandemic, you know, beyond what you kind of said about your book and then, and, and how did you have to adjust your kind of personal rhythms to both make it through the pandemic and then now as you're you know trying to you're leading the church out of the pandemic now. Yeah. I think I got much more integrated with nature mm. in the pandemic. I oh. I mean walking became so incredibly therapeutic to me because I wasn't um getting in a car and going to work and walking around and seeing people I and I realized like I I can't just like sit in a room and write that's mm -hmm. not inspirational for me. I don't I'm not creative when I'm just in a room um, and I don't have access to community like I once did, just rubbing shoulders and seeing people. And I started walking like three to six miles a day wow. and just it, the connections that I was making in my brain by getting away from things. The same with sleep, that when we get off of something, that's when you solve problems and things come together in your brain. It's really cool. Yeah. So I, I started walking a lot and integrating a lot of prayer in my walking here. I live um, on a creek or a marsh that's connected to the ocean. Mm -hmm. and the tides come in and out every day. And so when we're at high tide, I'll go paddle boarding most days. And so I found that my best prayer times um, have come through standing on a board on the water and using my body to, to move myself down the current or up the current. And I've just found like a new rhythm and joy with God by being in nature. So I never want to go back. I mean, even as we move toward the end of this pandemic, I just... I have found a new love for creation that is just a part now of my prayer rhythm that um, that I think I really needed and was lacking. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, one of the things that made me laugh, I, I was actually paddleboarding. Well, you're from Orlando. I was over in Lake Bryan doing a paddleboarding right in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, there's hardly anybody around because there's no tourists down here. But And I just remember thinking to myself, got a pandemic and then I saw an alligator and saw some birds. And I'm like, these birds, they don't even know what's going on. And, it, and it's just, life is just kind of moving along. And I just found like this, that the kind of the dumbest insight, but I was like, Whoa, that was so cool. Just to realize like all this stuff's happening around us, but then nature is just there and it's God's creation. So yeah, thanks. That's a, that's, that's, Amazing. that's wonderful. What about, um, Gonna ask the last time what were two or three books that were really influential in your life in general. I'm just curious on your book on prayer that you just prepared, being with God. Um, what were two or three conversation partners that you used that you found really helpful as you wrote that book? Anything come to mind? I mean, there's just been so much through the course of um, you know, it's such a it's such an abysmal journey, contemplative prayer. I, I would say the most recent ones 
um, and ones I use for my formation school here at St. Peter's in Charleston um, is uh, Interior Castle by mm. Teresa Bavila. Mm -hmm. um, and she's kind of a nutter and I love her for that. Like people are like, oh, I don't know about, and it's like, she writes some very questionable things that I find <laughs> nothing else interesting to consider. Um, and I would also say recently, I just can't say enough about um, Pete Scazzaro's work, Emotionally yeah. Healthy Discipleship. That's a helpful companion to like give some language um, to some of this stuff. And, and this one, I did not expect. I haven't read an Eldridge book for like 15 years, right? I read mm -hmm. Wild at Heart when it came out and I loved it, blah, blah, blah. I haven't even thought about a book like that from Eldridge for over a decade. And he wrote a book recently that my wife and I just absolutely are giddy about. And it's called Get Your Life Back. Mm. And it's like this really accessible, like simple prayer book on the absurdity of our noise and how to, how to resist it. And he's got this crazy, beautiful prayer that goes like this. God, this is his prayer. And so if you're like me and you're caught up in your brain and you know all your thoughts, he says, God, I give you everything and everyone. That's his prayer rhythm. That's like wow. his breath prayer. God, I give you everything and everyone. And it's just such a beautiful prayer of surrender because I'm holding on to so much stuff. Mm -hmm. And that just simple, like, God, I give you everything. I give you everyone. Wow. It's so cool. And so I have found a sweet surprise in John Eldridge in the last few months. And so um, I just can't say enough about him. Wow, that's a, that just ministered to my soul. That's a powerful prayer. So thank you for that. Um, so just going to close things out. We're uh, I'll post links to your new books. I know it's available for pre-order. Um, Being with God, the absurdity, necessity, and neurology of contemplative prayer will be out officially in October. But you can pre-order it now. But where where can folks find out more about you and engage with uh, with your work? Maybe your I don't know if you have it, your ministry school. What, what talk a little bit about um, how people can engage with you outside of your writing. Yeah, our church website is stpeters.me, and saint is spelled out. It's not S-T, it's S-A-I-N-T, so stpeters.me. But um, I, I'm sort of slow to social media. I I know the whole trap to that, and I just, I don't love it, but I know it's it's necessary. So I'm going to get my um, Instagram sort of rolling again. It's there. It's AJ yeah. underscore Cheryl. But I've got a few um, fun interviews around culture, um, prayer practice and, and, and brain science coming out um, starting September with John Mark Comer, Rich Velotis, John Tyson, people like this that are going to be um, unveiled once a week, um, or actually those will be Instagram lives. Um, and so you can interact with us if you're interested in joining that conversation. And so if you follow me on Instagram, you can see what that schedule is going to be. I'm going to post that here in the next few weeks. But um, I'm really looking forward to that. And so there'll be an opportunity to dialogue and join the conversation through those things. No, it sounds fantastic. And again, I just want to thank you for your faithfulness to the Lord, for the your service in, in churches and your ministry of writing and for being my guest today. You've given some things that have really spoken to my own heart. I know the folks that are listening are going to be really blessed by these. So thank you so much, AJ. Oh, you're welcome, Brian. Thanks so much for the work you're doing. And I'm grateful. And I pray for all your listeners that God would anoint you for the tasks that you're up to. And we pray the same thing for you and hopefully a speedy recovery. And uh, until uh, next time, thanks everybody for listening all the way to the end. Live by faith, be known by love, and be voices of hope in a world that uh, desperately looking for it. Amen. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you share it with a friend today? 
And even better, would you leave a review for it uh, wherever you've found this episode so that other people can also find it and enjoy it as much as you did. If you'd like to reach out to me with ideas for guests or feedback, send an email to deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. If you're interested in checking out the resources, you can look in the show notes and also invite you to sign up for information about my forthcoming book, Centering Prayer, Sitting quietly in God's presence can change your life. Go to www.centeringprayerbook.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.